Your spirit will do mighty things in our hearts and open up our minds to comprehend those, those big picture aspects, Lord, that are sometimes without our grasp and apply them to a daily living. We thank you for this in advance. Lord, we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Biblical discipleship. He that saith he abideth in him ought also himself to walk even as he walked. This verse is important. It will be the premise upon which we will build much of our discussions. If we do not believe this verse, if we do not believe that it is true, it is attainable, then much of what we discuss will not be relevant to us. These type of verses I propose that we gloss over at times, we give mental assent and theoretical belief, but somewhere we're not sure that this is the premise. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Wow. Our conversion, our conversion is the first step towards what? Think about it. It's a rhetorical question. It is our first step towards what? Just the verse before. It is our first step to becoming like Christ, to walking as he walked. There's an interesting story of a young man that was on a journey and he wasn't sure where he was. He sees a gentleman near the side of the road in a field and he says, oh good, I'll stop by. And he stops and he talks to the gentleman and he asks him, where exactly am I? Because he was unsure. And the older gentleman, being a wise old man, asks him a question first before answering, which is typically of those a little bit wiser than myself. They ask questions first and speak later. Well, it depends. Where are you going? He says, well, I don't know, the young man said. And the wise old man replied, well, then it doesn't much matter where you are, does it? If you don't know where you're going, who cares where you are? If you think about it for a moment, it really makes no difference. He could have told him he was anywhere, and it didn't matter because he didn't know where he was going anyways. Our conversion is our first step towards walking as Christ walked. That is where we are going. But some of us do not know where we're going, so we're establishing that. Question at hand for us is, we know that this is not automatic. It doesn't just happen. We'll lay that as a premise as well. So then, are we accomplishing this? And I thought I had some ideas and opinions on this topic, but I thought, let me do a little informal survey. And let me ask some of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is not a type of a survey that would be written up in any journals. It wasn't that organized. It wasn't that formal. It wasn't that deep. But it was a survey, an informal one. I canvassed around, and different people I would run into within our churches, I would ask them. I would ask old people, young people, mature people, immature people, different kinds of people from all walks of life, and said, Here's the, here's the question, and I need an answer. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being an individual who is saved, an infant in Christ, a newborn believer, and 10 equals walking as Christ walked. And if you look around, the believers that are around your life, look into your own heart first, and the believers that you see around you, everywhere, everybody included, Give me a number. One, new believer. Just 
infant, just, just baptized, or just given their life to Christ. Ten, walking as Christ walked. What is the average that you see? And I polled all these people and I compiled the results. Think in your own head what you think the answer might be. Survey says, a little bit of breaking glass there. 2.5 was the average number. Mostly, and that, that number was not compiled with some people telling me a, a zero and some four. It was pretty much two, three, 2.5, you know, five, four, one. I had nobody give me a number above five. This is about what I expected. So that's the number I would have had when I wrote it in. 2.5 is what we collectively, in general, believe. Now that, again, was an isolated survey, so it's not necessarily scalable. The question then becomes, okay, that's a nice number, Stan, I appreciate it. You know, all you accountants love numbers, but what does that number really mean? Translate that for me. Give me behavior traits. Put something behind that number. So basically what I think we have here is what does the number, 2.5 is a low number, let's grant that. What are the signs of an immature believer? As the people then that we were thinking of, what were we thinking of when we said 2.5? What was in our minds? Who were we picturing? What traits, dare I say, in my own life were coming across? Luckily, I was asked for a number, not for the specific traits in my life. Marginal desire for God's word. Few works of faith. Serving others, giving, etc. Easily swayed or deceived by false doctrines. Stuck in the basics, experiencing limited to zero growth. Limited desire for fellowship with the brethren. And I'll qualify this outside of official church settings. Even those may be limited desire. We may go sometimes more for peer pressure and because of some of the external constraints, which are not all bad. I'm not saying that. But the matter of the heart may be that on Wednesday nights may be there. Precious faith outside of that. Strong desire for worldly possessions or selfish ambitions. This does not mean we actually attain them or have them. It is the desire for. Difficulty in repenting and forgiving others. Having a hard time repenting, saying sorry or forgiving. Lacking compassion for the lost. Understand it mentally, but the compassion's just not there. Not actively assisting other believers in their growth. Limited sense of God, who He is, His character, His will. Life filled with fear, anxiety, <clears throat> denoted by a lack of peace. Often covetous, often boastful, prideful, manipulative in many areas. Self-centered, many, many, many other traits. Ongoing financial difficulties. Ongoing. Living under mounds of debt. We live in a culture that promotes this, so I understand this, and we have to sometimes take a look at that and understand that. However, the victory never seems to be won. You talk to people in their 20s, whether it's student loans, talk to people in their 30s, 40s, this is what I do a little bit for a living, 50s, 60s, it never changes. Believers, unbelievers, it's pretty ratio is the same. Seekers of pleasure. Abundant pleasure, constantly. Anytime we're not doing something, what? Pleasure. Lives marked by a lack of discipline in many areas. Partial victory over sin. But there's lots of sins that are not conquered. Non-existent or maybe a limited lackluster prayer life. Little or no time for personal worship. Corporate worship, some. 
personal worship. It's kind of a scary little slide. That is what exists often. So what is the central issue? The central issue as defined for today's forum is that there are too many Christians not attaining that new life in Christ. Not attaining that new life in Christ. And Brother Roy, if I could trouble you. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4. God expects us to walk in newness of life, to walk as Christ walked, as 1 John 2, 6 that we saw. Christ's life was amazing. It was characterized by peace. It was characterized by serving others, no self-centeredness. It was characterized by solitude, prayer, devotion, worship, giving, joy. Others were characterized by the same things. Other apostles, disciples, many men and women of faith. It is possible. It is attainable. God expects it. Too many believers are not <coughs> successful in an everyday manner to attaining this new life in Christ and walking in it. Too, too many believers are stuck in the sad existence of a life substantially unchanged from before their conversions. I would call many of the, our believers' lives, and I'm speaking again, be careful for sounding maybe harsh. I speak to myself first. Living very remarkable lives. We heard a little bit about sarcasm this morning, so I'll try it a little bit here. Living very remarkable lives. You know how remarkable they are? They're remarkably unchanged from when they were before their conversions. Many of the same factors we pointed on were our problems before, problems after. This is the idea that God has for us in our conversion. It is for all eternity, but it has its practical relevance on a day-to-day -day basis. So what is causing this? If we have a church full of believers who have been saved and converted to the new life in Christ, but yet we see fundamentally lives unchanged, not changed to some degree, not even changed by some people, some individuals to a large degree, but en masse. What is causing this? Let's look at a few of the trends that may be limiting a Christian's ability to be conformed to the image of Christ. These are just a few trends. They're not all inclusive. They, again, are just some trends and things that I noted. A tendency to gravitate to the mean or the norm. This creates an arbitrarily low standard to which new believers aspire, comparing themselves to their own selves. Let me put it for you another way. Is if, if you look at masses, people generally gravitate to a mass. You find a common medium, and you, and you look at that, and you compare that, and you say, that's where the force of the behavior is at. And it's like a magnet drawing people to the, to the, to the masses. It's very hard to live individually. We are, live constrained by this magnet of the mass, the mass force. That happens a lot. Let us read 2 Corinthians 10:12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some, some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. It is not wise. Very often what happens is we find somebody just below ourselves and then we say, okay, I'm doing a bit better than that person. That person finds someone just a bit lower than themselves and they find they're doing better. It is not that we are looking always for those that are doing better and trying to raise up. It is often that we are finding who are we better than and guess what happens over time, 10, 20, 30, 50 years? 
the standard comes very, very low. And people attain the standard, unfortunately. Many times it's around a 2.5. False belief that faith has limited practical relevance. That's a false belief. It's not necessarily taught, it's just kind of what happens sometimes. We believe in eternity, we believe in all this, we believe in being saved for eternity, but saved for today, for a new life in Christ, doesn't always exist. Selfish Christianity, lives so busy that we don't have the time to fulfill our duty to seek first the kingdom of God on a daily basis. We use that verse often to say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you, meaning give your life to Christ, be baptized, and all these things will be added unto you. No, that's wrong. Seek ye first the kingdom of God on a daily basis and all these things shall be added unto you. Get much. Now we are constrained by time. Relationships between husbands and wives, and I definitely uh, read a few, I had a few things, struggles of the day, maybe the children made a mess or different things, and immediately, aha, I can, first of all, for the communication within a marriage, but number two, they actually don't make any practical relevance. Very often the person understands those things, but the problems are deeper, challenges are more significant. Counseling to get to the heart takes significantly more time, is much harder, and is not always done, therefore. Baptism being viewed as the ultimate goal for the believers. There was a story that was related to me that kind of shook me to, my, to some degree. And it occurred in a camp setting. The question was put classroom to, it was teenagers. A student was asked, this question was asked, if you knew exactly when you were to die, what would you do? And the class thought, one of the young students raised their hand, wasn't a believer, but said, but it was around the faith and knew a lot about it. I would wait until the last possible moment, right before, the hour, ten minutes before, I would give my life to Christ, I was baptized. And the teacher said, why? Because that is when I would be the most salvation conversion is not the end. It is the beginning of a life growing in Christ. That is an infant. God is not pleased by an infant more than he is pleased by a mature person, thoroughly furnished unto every good work, growing in the life of a believer. So what can all of these trends be attributed to? They are, they are foundational. They hit on many practical points. These trends can, in my opinion, be all attributed to one thing. Lack of discipleship. The trends that I mentioned are just a subset. There are so many trends affecting the lives of believers, pulling them back from being conformed to the image of Christ. Satan is all over this world, and there is nothing he likes better. Keeping people from Christ initially, and then dragging down those who have been raised to a new and lively hope. And there are many, many trends he propagates, and that we, that we kind of get sucked into. Lack of discipleship. In the apostolic Christian church, let us ask ourselves a question. Have we done, as a body of believers, a uniform group, a corporate entity, together, as fellowship of believers, have we done what is necessary to bring the earnest convert into possession of their new life in Christ? Discipleship in quotes. What is it? What, have it, what has it historically been at times? Not always, but at times. Let's look personally. Look to my life and look to many of the lives of people I see here. I know many of you very well. After we were baptized, what did our discipleship consist of? We have done many, many good things, and we'll get to many of those things as well. And some of them are right here. 
Sunday and midweek sermons. As an organization, I think we do a wonderful job at that. We are consistent. Sunday Bible class, I'd say for most of churches. Youth groups, camps, retreats, many of fortunate enough to take part in many of these and experience significant discipleship. There's individual that had some effects on me in these areas. Observation and imitation of others' actions. We definitely are quasi-disciple by seeing what's going on. Part of that is good, part of that is bad, as we established at the beginning. And some personal devotion and prayer time. In general, and that's pretty much the ex- In general, I would propose to you that we have done the job of telling and explaining how it should be. We have also, on many occasions, even exhibited a Christian existence for others to observe and try to follow. But I'll tell you, based on the biblical principles we're going to see later, we're leaving a lot of low-hanging fruit on the tree. There is many, there are many opportunities to improve on this. Believers on their own, in general, will have a tendency to remain in their infancy and struggle in things and have a life that is not constituted by victory for years and years and years and years. Your analogy with a child or an infant is not exactly the same because an infant left on its own will literally... And I do not want to take that analogy that far because I do not believe... I believe God has power and His Spirit is working and His Spirit has a part of this discipleship. But I think speaking, an infant left on its own will not... It will end up staying at that size. And with that. These are the tools we have historically used. And there's a quote that uh, comes to my mind. When you have a limited set of tools... Yeah, some of the uh, maybe my friend uh, in the back here might know this. When all you have, and I can think of too, when all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. You make do with what you have. I know I've used my hammer for on my VCR and other things as opposed to <laughs> screwdriver. It looked like a nail. When all you have is a hammer, when you ha- you use the tools that you have, and we've clearly done that, and I think to God's honor and glory. There, are, there is much low-hanging low fruit. I propose that we need to adopt the biblical principle of discipleship. And Brother Roy, in one second here. Let me go back here. After we learn to walk as he walked, we definitely need to start teaching others the same. As ye have therefore received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. The whole theme of walking as he walked continues to stand before us. You know, I heard another thought recently that struck me. If we would put a third of the effort into learning and teaching of Christ, as compared to secular comparisons here, a professional, let's say, violinist, a professional chef, a professional athlete. Take your pick amongst many professions. There is many, many hours of learning from a master or a mentor or teachers and effort in practicing. If we put a third of the effort that they put in into our Christian growth, both teaching and learning, we would live amazing Christian lives, walking as he walked. People put this life, type of effort into lives. 
Discipleship is one of the key tools to, build, to bridge the gap from salvation into maturity. That is one of our basic points here today. So let's define it. So what is discipleship? As best as I can define it, I made up a definition. I took it from much prayer and thought. And this is what I came up with. And I'll just read this one for you. So I, put, I try to be very specific with words. Discipleship is the level of empathy and concern for the convert where the mature brother or sister goes beyond telling to teaching, beyond explaining to actually showing, assisting, and holding accountable to biblical teaching. Again, the example of our children holds true. How many of us, although we may wish it to be so, could, could see our children for two to three hours per week and tell them everything that they need to know periodically and, and just, for me, there's, there's this beautiful child named Lance 20 years down the road. We would be dealing with a disastrous child. Self-centered, focused on themselves, no guidance, no parental, no accountability. Often, we can't hold accountable because we're not around. How can you hold an accountable child? How many of us have walked into a room and you hear a bunch of crying and you ask, what happened? Well, we don't know, so who gets in trouble? Well, in the old country, my dad says everybody. So in, in the new country here, I, get, I think it's nobody. Yeah, and I'm not sure which one's right. You know, it's, it's maybe, maybe we should go back to the old country way. You line them all up. But there's something about when you're not around, you can't hold accountable. You definitely can't teach and show, well, if you could have done this, you could have done this. If you could have done this, this. And you can't hold accountable. This is what discipleship is. The level of empathy and concern for the convert with mature brother or sister goes beyond telling to teaching. goes beyond explaining to showing and holding accountable to biblical principles. Let's look at the biblical basis for this discipleship that we're talking about. And we're going to get into lots of verses that the Bible is full of this topic. It is not for a lack of material. I spent probably, brothers and sisters, and I say this in all humility, probably the last three months, many, many hours a week, trying to take volumes of material and bring it down to what would be impactful, what could be grasped, pulling together. There is so much to understand and know. Number one, you first need to become a disciple of Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all, the, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Secondly, we need to learn of him. You can't teach anything whereof you don't know. So you have to become a disciple of Christ. You have to understand his grace. Then you have to I have to learn of him. Beautiful. And God put it right in order for us. Matthew eleven twenty eight and Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Verse twenty eight, come unto me, all ye that labor, verse twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. We absolutely need to learn of Christ and his spirit, his word. We need to complement this learning with additional learning times with mature brothers and sisters. 2 Timothy 2.2 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou unto faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Who shall be able to teach others also. I did an exhaustive uh, analysis of the word teach in the Bible. And walk, and I just gave up. I mean, I print reams and reams and reams and reams. The Bible teaches that we have been put here to teach others and to, obviously to learn. Number four, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Let's read Luke 9, 60. 
Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. This is in the specific order. We need to learn. We need to come and be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We need to learn of him. We need to learn from others that are more mature in the faith, who have attained that walk in Christ. And we need to go preach the gospel. Let the dead bury their dead. Go. And number five, we need to teach others to know and observe God's principles. Let us read and see what it says in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's all things. That's a lot of things. Teaching them. And I think we're getting the idea that discipleship and teaching is a lot of the same thing. Teaching is not done from a distance. I, I see Brother Johnny in the room and he's, I'm sure he did not teach the other teachers to teach from a distance. There is, that is telling. And there is a form of that. That is a little bit of what today is. Today is a telling and explaining type of thing. And they have value. I'm not minimizing the value of today. But an hour is telling. Teaching is another thing. 2 Timothy 2.2 2, again, we read it. But in the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. There are so many converse principles applied here that there are not faithful men, that there are those who are not able to teach, it is God's will and desire for us to be such, to grow into that and be able to do that. Let's look at some examples. We just looked at the biblical basis for discipleship, now let's look at some biblical examples. And we're just going to go through these briefly in the interest of time. If you're taking notes, please feel to take the notes. I'll give you the handouts if you like. Twelve disciples of Jesus Christ in Matthew 10, 1-4. We also have the 70 disciples sent forth by Christ to witness and to teach in Luke chapter 10. We have disciples of John the Baptist. Discipleship was there even with John the Baptist, Matthew 11. All the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, and they did much in that early church in teaching. And we hear about Apostle Paul spending a year, year and a half in places in teaching amongst them. Paul and Timothy, his disciple, which is one of the models that is often looked at. It's 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 4, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. Really, it's all of 1 and 2 Timothy. I would encourage everyone to read all of those. We've looked at the biblical basis. We have some biblical examples. Let us look at some of the biblical verses, some of the Bible's verses commanding us to. I picked and I had a hard time sorting through these. I, I had just many of them. They, were, they just touched my heart to such a degree. But let me share some of them with you. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into the remembrance of my wage, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere and in every church. I can just picture the Apostle Paul doing such. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. And that word apt, in my opinion, means two things. His desirous of such and has the capabilities and the maturity to do so. A life exemplified to be able and apt to teach. Not in a position of, of teaching, able to. In 1 Timothy 4.11, these things command and teach. And interesting, the two words, 
commanded. And these verses resonated with me so powerfully. This, this has been an idea on my heart. Let me take a side note here and tell you. For the last two years, this has been heavy on my heart. And the last six months specifically, really pounding into this topic. And the verses are just that God's word and his spirit will do much more than my words will. 2 Timothy 2, 2, we've seen those. 2 Timothy 2, 24, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, apt to teach patience. And the last one I put up, because sometimes we hear the words, the nomenclature and the, and the phrasings of men. This is to both of us, to both sexes. The aged woman likewise, that they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Titus 2, 3, and 4, and there's much else in there as well. The women, the believing women, are clearly called to discipleship and to teach. What is the role of the church? And as I struggled with it, it became actually very clear at the end. Very simple. The role of God's church is to teach and preach Jesus Christ and thereby to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. God the Father. To preach and to teach Jesus Christ. Acts 5, 42. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. That is the role of the church. What is the historical position? I thought this would be a little bit interesting. We have a, a wonderful church founded in years and years, hundreds of years of history. What is the historical position of the apostolic Christian church in matters relating to exhorting brothers and sisters? Teaching brothers and sisters. Some, some wonderful places we have. The covenant of fellowship. As a matter of fact, I have a copy of it. Um, I'll, I'll maybe I'll pull it up for those you want to see it afterwards. The covenant of fellowship. Our leaderships are, are actual written down and approved phrasing for a lot of our covenants of fellowship. And similar to the statement of faith and our we believe. We have a covenant of fellowship. And it starts this way. And I only pulled a few of these. There's 12 of them. 12 covenants of fellowship. By the help and guidance of the Holy Spirit, we endeavor to, second principle, to exercise Christian care and watchfulness over one another. 1 Corinthians 12.25 is the basis for that. This is one of our covenants, one of our promises. We, we, we ask a lot of our converts, you understand you're making a covenant here. Our covenant of fellowship with each other as caregivers to each other is just that, to exercise Christian care and watchfulness over one another. Our covenant of fellowship also reads in the third covenant, to pray with and for one another, sharing our burdens, our sorrows, and our joys. And just to be a little bit more poignant, I am going to take the moment and point into some of these things, to point into my life and point into the lives of you sitting here, because I know you can take it, because we all want to, we want to grow, and point out our covenant to exercise Christian care and watchfulness over one another. I can even, let me just twist that around to how many times that is. Maybe not to watch, uh, to watch for Christian care, to watch, to point to share, to gossip. That happens a lot. Number three, to pray. We do this one a lot. What if it said our covenant fellowship is to, when we see people and we hear about a burden, to walk up to them and say, I'll pray for you. And then as best effort as we have, maybe follow up to that. Many times not. Very likely, based on our lives, what we established in the past. But look at what it says. To pray with. And four, we focus on the four, which is important. 
but to pray with and for. Sharing our burdens, our sorrows, and our joys. Do we not live in a world that says, share your joys, share your successes, only share your failures to show how you succeeded over them, but never come clean with, this is my burden, this is my sorrow, this is where I'm at. Oh, wow. How did you experience success over that? Well, I haven't. I'm sharing with you my, my, my struggle. If anybody would even peradventure share that, which I would share with you is very uh, unlikely in the circle that we run around in, in general, in this, in this world, if they would, the natural reaction would be, okay, that's a little much. You know, I, I had five minutes and I'm being sucked into now somebody's life. And that's not what I had intended. That is not a part of our covenant of fellowship. And obviously we'd be breaking many things. Number five, to guard the spiritual and scriptural purity, peace and prosperity of the church and its growth in scriptural knowledge and godliness. These are such beautiful covenants. They are clearly been engaged. The brothers that had wrote this, I would have liked to have been there when they had years ago. To guard the spiritual and scriptural purity, peace and prosperity of the church and its growth in scriptural knowledge and godliness. We are covenanting that we will help the believers in the church grow into all godliness to keep the scriptures pure and taught. That is our covenant to each of us, to each other to engage regularly in personal Bible reading and prayer and to establish family devotions where possible. Again, I submit to you humbly that if we did even a remote version of this, and there's 12 of these, and they're all pretty close. I could have read all 12, really, and they would have applied. I picked these four. If we did even a remote version of this, it would be a different world for us. We would be sharing much. We would be helping much. The role of teachers and leaders within the church. And Brother Roy, I think you have that looked up as well. Study and rightly divide in 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Very, very important in order for the individual teachers and leaders to be rightly dividing the word of truth, to be able to teach it. Let's also look at able to teach and instructing those that are struggling to recover themselves. If you look here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it is amazingly powerful. Look at what it finishes with. This is just a taste. I wish we had time just to take a look at this chapter. It would be the basis of an entire two days, 2 Timothy 2. But listen carefully to 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. Why do you need to rightly divide the tr truth? Why do you need to know the word well? Why? 24 and 25. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. The basis for all of this, the knowledge, the study, study to show that self approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, is because we live in a world full of believers and others who will be opposing themselves. Apostle Paul says, that which I would, I do not. That which I would not, that I do. 
There will be people opposing themselves, believers. We find ourselves daily with an idea, but we, we practically put ourselves in opposition to it. We make